0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Sarah Bernstein, in a word, wow, a multiple Emmy and Peabody Award-winning producer, she's currently Executive Vice President of Imagine Documentaries, and in that role was the executive producer of Once We Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, and Dads, which was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Speaking of Howard, Sarah's most recent documentary project for National Geographic, Rebuilding Paradise, was directed by Bryce's dad, Ron Howard. It chronicles the devastating firestorm that ravaged the city of Paradise, California, in 2018. It was the deadliest U.S. fire in a 100 years. Imagine Documentaries, by the way, is the documentary division of Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's Imagine Entertainment. Before joining Imagine, Sarah was Senior Vice President at HBO Documentary Films, and her list of credits, which is extensive, include Emmy-nominated The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, Judd Apatow's Emmy-winning The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, Citizen Four, which won an Oscar and an Emmy, and both the Emmy-nominated Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck and Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know this cinematic producing powerhouse. Sarah, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me
0: and for that lovely introduction. You know, Sarah, all my guests say the same thing. Wow, thank you so much. I'm not a lovely person. I just wrote (laughs) What, what's true? Don't, does it give you pause when somebody rattles off your accomplishments? Yes, because I don't think I'm that old. <laughs> then, okay, then so I you started really young.
1: I started so young, I started out of grade school at HBO. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's 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 a wonderful and, and really, frankly, humbling to hear all those credits flash by and just to remember all of the incredible filmmakers and filmmaking talent I've been able to work with over the years. So when I hear those credits, I think of the filmmakers, really. And of course I was just so lucky to have spent so much of my career at a place like HBO.
0: Well, not for nothing Sarah. Companies like that don't suffer fools gladly. You know, <laughs> assuming that your father didn't own it, you got <laughs> you got there because of your talent and your ability. So let's speaking of your father, let's go back when you were growing up. Did movies play an important role in your life? I was such a TV baby.
1: I think that I I was I was I raised by TV. I think I was that generation and who we mostly grew up in the 80s who was just familiar with sort of the daydreams and the worlds and sort of the exciting territory that I saw on TV and you know movies certainly played into that but I think the idea that there were so many great sitcoms and dramas and I think stars and just storytelling was kind of accessible on an everyday basis as a kid Mm -hmm. made me really want and dream from an incredibly young age, Uh um, to be in the movie business, Mm -hmm. whatever that meant. And I grew up in suburban Jersey. So it wasn't as if I had a lot of access, although clearly I lived close enough to New York City, and my parents were, um, were really wonderful in sort of exposing my brother and I to the arts and to Broadway. We certainly had that kind of access and privilege, but I, I was from a suburban town, so the idea of to one day be working for Ron Howard and
0: Brian <laughs> Grazer <laughs> seemed kind of out of reach. I have to digress for a second because I grew up in suburban Jersey and I
1: still
0: live in suburban Jersey. I grew up in Bergen County. I grew up in Tenafly and I currently live in Teaneck. I grew up in Wayne. So we were neighbors, although I'm clearly a lot older than you are. (laughs) Uh, Your parents and I were probably neighbors. So what time frame are we talking about? Um, 90s?
1: I mean, I was in school for... Mostly like the 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Or 80s, I guess, late 70s, even.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so when it was time for you to go to college, was that on your brain in something? in terms of film, television, creative writing, whatever. Did that yes,
1: yes. I mean, I guess I guess you could say I sort of had a one-track mind. So I grew up in Wayne, New Jersey. Our school had a very kind of nascent sort of fledgling television, what we used to call television production class, which kind of exposed me to just, I would say, the very basic mechanics of what was involved in trying to put on some sort of live TV show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that kind of whetted my appetite, nurturing and cultivating, I would say, just my my desire and passion to, to be exposed to as much as I could when it came to film, TV, journalism, and communications in general. I did go to the University of Maryland down in College Park. There was a radio, film, and TV program that I participated in, and I think being, I guess, so kind of one track driven. Um, I was always interested in journalism. I had an English minor. I um, tried to expose myself to kind of other aspects of the arts and and just, I guess, kind of practical studies, if you will. But mm-hmm. I sought out internships.
0: Let's get political for a second. Did your gender make a difference?
1: I had an incredibly supportive father growing up. I have to give my father a lot of credit. Um, mm-hmm. He was a doctor, is still a doctor, an internist, a physician. He, We certainly had some means. I wouldn't say we were wealthy by any means, but he was incredibly supportive of anything you want to be to me, I could certainly do. And I think I was raised by a mother who was equally as loving and as supporting as she could be, but was primarily sort of a stay at home mm-hmm. mother. And I think I just looked to my father as that role model of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I knew that I wanted to be the one working and I wanted to be the one who had a career. So I, it's interesting. I never really thought about my gender as being an obstacle in my early years. And I think that was also equally kind of, my career was equally lifted and supported by women from a a very early stage. So maybe that also kind of had something to do with me never really feeling...
0: Marginalized?
1: Marginalized in a way that a lot of other women, I think, had, Mm -hmm. although I was certainly aware of certain limitations on representation, Mm -hmm. certain limitations on representation in management positions and so on. But I think I, I was, I was definitely supported by women.
0: That's very encouraging. I mean, I've I've heard both from women who, uh, particularly women filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And while women have become more and more ubiquitous, it's still an issue. And being on a set and men saying, I'm taking directions from her. I mean, it's certainly yeah. things have shifted dramatically, but it's not a hundred percent perfect. No, it's not. So take us on your trajectory. What was your first job and what was in the back of your head that I want to do what, when it was time for you to graduate?
1: I think when I graduated, I just wanted to be in the business. I just, again, I just wanted to work. I wanted to work on a movie set. Okay. However, I could make that happen. And my first job, um, although I had worked on a couple, I would say, or several short, what we call short films. So films where you're really making no money at all. And the budgets are ridiculously low. And there's Mm -hmm. an actor or an actress who is kind of, Moderately sort of exposed to the industry, but probably could be famous five to 10 years from that role, (laughs) more or less, in the short film that they appear in. So I, I did work on a couple of those types of projects. And then I landed, I would say my first meaningful job was working for two producers, Lisa Bruce and Bob Nixon, who were independent feature film producers mm-hmm. on a uh, a film that was called Gasoline Alley that was shooting in Staten Island. Huh. And I was a PA and it was the first time I had to drive a 15 pass van and pick up <laughs> lumber. <laughs> and I was you know, yeah, who has, who has 20 <laughs> 22, twenty. <laughs> three-year-old young woman sort of trying (laughs) to navigate through the streets of New York City. And like I said, picking up lumber in the heart of Chinatown and (laughs) finding my way out to Staten Island where I worked for a wonderful summer.
0: And that really whetted your appetite. (laughs)
1: <laughs> traffic kind of, that was standing. Um, it didn't make uh, me run from the business. I'll put it that way. Okay, but it definitely okay. made me realize: a, it exposed me clearly to every role that was involved with um, mm-hmm. a feature film production. From being the PA, I was the office PA. That's what I was called. But the PA or the set PA to the art department, to the lighting, to the grips, to this the scenery to clearly the cinematography department and the production management and so on and so on and so on. And during the course of that, it gave me exposure to these two very tenacious, very talented producers who also happened to teach at NYU Film School. And I just begged them to take me under their wing. And so So they used to to joke with me that I was getting sort of the free NYU graduate (laughs) program. So working for, you know, peanuts for them.
0: What spoke to you occupationally about what you saw and what you experienced? Did you go home and say, gosh, I really want to be a director or a screenwriter or a producer?
1: I think it taught me that I want to be a producer. I want to be the person who is generating ideas working with the creative talent from the ground floor up, influencing creative decisions and making director's dreams reality.
0: Oh, wow. That's a beautiful thing to say. I think people oftentimes are confused about what the role of a producer is. On Broadway, for example, you got to get the funds to put on, we want to put on a play. And that's totally wrong, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: There's such a long road until that actually happens. And it's even so much harder, I have to say, with scripted projects and feature films and certainly independent feature films. And I think one of the reasons why I took so well to being sort of engulfed or to, to really, in a way, kind of dedicating a huge part of my career so far until I moved from um, moved over to imagine documentaries at a place like HBO and specifically at a place like HBO Documentaries, because it's it's incredibly challenging to put all those pieces together, and it takes a lot of tenacity and a lot of passion, and you can't really give up, and it takes producers and directors often years to get projects off the ground. And I think what I love so much about documentary filmmaking is that the effects or the actions are almost more immediate in terms of how you chase a story, Hmm. how you can evolve a story. Whereas And I have so much respect for my scripted colleagues at Imagine, and certainly Ron Howard, Brian Grazer. I mean, they're they're masters of the scripted form. But you know, a lot of work goes into writing the script, the story development, the perfect cast, the perfect. It it, it really has to become the the total perfect package to set up those projects. Whereas with documentaries, you could just be curious about a subject. You could start talking to your neighbor and realize that there's something really kind of hidden underneath their day-to-day existence that's worth exploring. You could turn the camera on a member of your own family and discover a whole world that you hadn't necessarily been exposed to. So it's much, I shouldn't say easier, because there are a lot of documentaries that take an equal amount of work to get off the ground. But I think if you have any sort of access to, for example, a camera, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you, can, you can start recording.
0: When I get on my soapbox, and I'm going to do that now for just a moment, the power and the potency of documentaries just cannot be understated to expose, to teach, to encourage. And that's I I quite frankly can't get enough of them. And whether it's the most recent David Foster off the record or something as powerful as Rebuilding Paradise, which we'll get to in a moment, how can you not be impacted by this form of media? So how did you get involved at HBO Documentary Films, which is really the pinnacle, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. It still is. And when I was really there, was also when this wonderful woman, Sheila Evans, was oh still, yeah, uh, was, you know <laughs> legendary in sure. our documentary world, was running it. And it was interesting. My I ended up at HBO Documentaries a little bit by chance, I would say, and a little bit with I think luck and certainly hard work, mm-hmm. but. So just to kind of connect the dots, the last feature film that I worked on was a project called The Preacher's Wife, which I don't know if you remember. It was a major Disney feature that was directed by Penny Marshall that starred Whitney Houston and Courtney Vance and Denzel Washington. And it was a huge production in New York City. And it was really my, my last studio project as a PA that I worked on. And through the incredible women who I was working for on that project, these two women, Karen Campbell and Paulette Clark, who had hired me and brought me on, who were um, just great production coordinators and managers, I met a, um, a a man who is now still one of my one of my close friends, uh, John Murchison, who had worked for Spike Lee for a period of time and then had a job working at HBO Films, which was then called HBO NYC, if you remember. And they were doing all these great, sort of gritty, independent films. Mm-hmm. And he had just been tapped to work in a new department of HBO at the time that was going to focus on limited series. So in the first series that came out of that department were was, ironically, From Earth to the Moon, <laughs> which was a project that Imagine... Had produced, huh. uh, kind of on the heels. I think of Apollo thirteen. Mm-hmm. So it was. Uh, it, it's it's just interesting how you can how I'm connecting the dots, or you right, know, my, right. My career right now, but and nonetheless, he helped recruit me. And there was another executive there, uh Ann who I was I was hired to work for. So I actually started HBO working in scripted and limited series. But we were in New York, and we were sort of the lone scripted group in New York. And at some point, we started working on several of the documentaries that Sheila Nevins and the documentary group at HBO were overseeing. And I started getting some exposure to the documentary work that HBO was doing, and certainly to Sheila. And I was so floored by films like Paradise Lost... I don't know if you know, this this trilogy actually It became a trilogy that Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky had directed about the West Memphis Three case, if you remember, in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Which focused on the horrible murders of three little boys and three teenagers who were accused of it. And I have to say, through that film and, and many others that they were producing at the time, I was just so impressed by how moving and how riveting sort of this real life process could be from, from almost a dramatic narrative perspective, let alone just from an impactful social issue perspective. And I also saw kind of, to be honest, like a a really, I saw a potential and a track for myself in that department and mostly because of Sheila's support and what she saw in me. So at some point, I was given the opportunity to sort of move over to the documentary group. And I started as Sheila Evans' assistant. Mm-hmm. And then spent almost 20 years in the department, working my way up and being able to to work on, oversee, and really support some incredible films and filmmakers over the years.
0: So clearly, that was a seminal run for you that that really gave you so much exposure and so much more street cred, too, I would imagine. Not that you didn't have it before you got there, but it even um, expanded your world so much more, even.
1: It did. It did. And what was so amazing and, and what I'm really trying to kind of implement as best as I can, along with my partner at Imagine Documentaries, Justin Wilkes, is this idea of just being exposed to so many different stories, so many different walks of life, and really important issues, much like the issues that we explore in Rebuilding Paradise through real stories, but real stories that can be riveting, that can yeah. play out better than, or as well as any sort of scripted narrative film that you may watch. Absolutely. And that's what HBO and that's what Sheila and the great team that was there. And again, all the filmmakers we worked with, that's what they really taught me that idea that truth is stranger than fiction <laughs> in many ways. I think <laughs> right. it's a powerful um, right. story medium.
0: So as we move over to Imagine Documentaries, that's a relatively new offshoot of Imagine Entertainment?
1: It is, it is. So we launched it about two years ago and it came off of um, you know a real sort of Growth mandate for Imagine Entertainment, which has been around, I think, for at least 30 years. That is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company, and they clearly have produced the most, you know, some of the most amazing scripted feature films and TV Absolutely. series over the years, both ones that Ron has directed, like, you know, I don't have to rattle off all yeah, well, things. Right, right. And
0: it would, take, it would take three days.
1: Yeah, it would take forever, both on sort of the, the feature film side with projects like Beautiful Minds, Apollo 13, Eight Mile. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest, um, if you look at those projects, you realize Hillbilly Elegy, which Ron has um, upcoming for Netflix, they're based on true stories.
0: hmm right.
1: And then obviously on the TV side, they've done these great projects like Friday Night Lights and Arrested Development and Empire and most recently, Wu-Tang for Hulu. So they, they've always had such a strong passion for documentaries and they had produced and Ron has directed several documentary films over the past few years. So they were very interested in getting more aggressive into the documentary space. And, and it also sort of coincided with just a great time in the industry, to be honest, clearly the landscape of what people consider tv has completely changed with netflix and the proliferation of other streaming platforms which we're right. seeing pop up right now from hbo right. max obviously hulu apple tv plus disney plus so there are all these incredible platforms that are really understanding i think the value of having Different offerings for the subscribers. And in many ways, sort of it's the they've taken a cue from that HBO playbook where you can have all these incredible scripted series and feature films, but you need more to make that package, that that subscription, I think enticing. And Netflix has done it really well, which is how they position Documentary offerings right next to feature films like The Old Guard, like so you don't even know if you're choosing a documentary, exactly or Charlie's Theron, you know, wonderful film. So it was a really interesting time for me personally to think about what was going to be the next chapter of my career, but also how can we expand, imagine into this documentary space in a meaningful and hopefully potentially profitable way. So it was a great time with, like I said, this proliferation of different network and platform partners like Nat Geo Films who would have an interest in our documentary projects.
0: The other night I was looking through Netflix and there was a documentary called Walter Mercado, Mucho, Mucho Amor. Yes. And I was who the hell is this guy? What is this? <laughs> and I watched this documentary about this astrologer from Puerto Rico with yeah. my mouth open. Who knew about this guy? And it was just, (laughs) I mean, it was was crazy interesting. (laughs) He was so famous. I never heard of him. And again, it's just, wow, I can have that same reaction from a documentary that I can about a riveting feature film. Yes. And speaking of which, that's really what happened to me when I watched Rebuilding Paradise. Mm. Watching movies is not a passive activity. I was in that documentary, Hook, Line, and Sinker. And there were times when A, I couldn't catch my breath, and B, the tears were streaming down my face. And it is a real powerhouse. Why don't you talk about making that film?
1: Well, thank you so much for saying that. It's um incredibly meaningful to hear that reaction. I would say Rebuilding Paradise was a true labor of love for all of us on the film team. And It started with the awful, horrendous news of the campfire. For those of you out there listening who aren't familiar with um, what the film is about, the film focuses on the community of Paradise, California, in the wake of just the horrible, tragic, devastating campfire wildfire that happens on November 8th, 2013. Eighteen, which completely devastated Paradise, California, left fifty thousand plus people displaced and killed eighty-five people as well. And I'd imagine we're all watching the news, much like you know many people around the country and certainly people globally. And we're wondering, you know, is there something we can do? Is there what do we do? Like, do you react to this and? Ron Howard and this lovely woman, uh, Louisa, who works with Ron, had certainly been watching this. And Ron actually had a personal connection to the community. His mother in law had lived in Paradise. For a period of time, he had various other relatives that lived in the region and he called and, and he and Louisa were watching this very closely and they thought, well, maybe there is something that we should do here. So they called us up and myself, Justin Wilkes, and you know, Ron said, what do you think? Can we send a crew? Can we explore what's happening? Because what I would be interested in—this is Ron Howard talking—is sort of how does this community move on? How do they cope? Like, what? How do you get through something like this? And so we immediately jumped into gear. As I said, you can do with documentary filmmaking, and we mobilized and we sent um, a crew to Paradise and we started filming. And the community was incredibly welcoming and supportive of our team who spent a year more or less on the ground because our, our goal was to to cover the process or really cover the first year I should say of how does this community move on and how do they attempt to rebuild and our Producers who were really on the ground, uh, Zan Parker and and Liz Moorheim, created just such a strong connection with the community. And one of the themes that we would keep talking about, and we would look at footage, and they would come back and share with us stories when Ron wasn't on the ground there about just the grief that the community was really experiencing. So it was sort of interesting to even think about this as charting sort of the year and how can a community recover, but also sort of, you know, what are those stages of grief that people normally go through with loss, but how does a community sort of go through that? So it was an incredible process to to experience and to explore. And I think what inc- what really I hope, and, and I know Ron really hopes resonates with people and why we felt and why Nat Geo felt right now is the right time to to release the film because it's actually opening theatrically, <laughs> whatever that means today. You know, this time so, exactly you know, and we could get into that too. I could describe that a little bit. But the reason why we thought it was the right time to to put this film out in the world is that I think so many communities today are dealing with rebuilding and coping. And we're still in the middle of something as tragic and as damaging and that has claimed so many lives in this country as our COVID-19 situation. And we're witnessing and experiencing economic collapses and community breakdown on so many different levels that we're hoping that this film, which follows the community of paradise and several people specifically within that community will offer um, some hope because that community was incredibly resilient and it's really, really inspiring.
0: I think what got to me was that these people (laughs) became part of my life in the hour and a half that I'm watching it. From Zach Boston, the high school senior, yeah. to the woman who was the superintendent of schools, to, oh my God, the police officer, you know, Matt Gates. I remember the names. I mean, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, but I remember, <laughs> the, you know, I remember the names. I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a second. You can't not be familiar with the expression of, what the heck do I want to watch a documentary for and see other people's problems? You know, there's enough going on in the world. Let me go to be entertained. How do you respond to that?
1: I mean, look, like, there's plenty of things you can watch to be entertained if you want to. But I think, and again, this is where this idea of what we call in the documentary world, cinema verite sort of um, right. takes over and I think will hopefully convince people who are maybe a little reluctant because it's true. Like the world is is really bleak right now. And there is a lot of tragedy on the news and we're being bombarded 24-7 with everything that's happening in the country and in the world right now. But I think what I'm banking on is that idea when I said cinema verite, I'm sorry to digress, is this idea of really immersing, filmmakers immersing themselves in a very somewhat observational way to let the subjects tell their own story so that you're really following, you know, Ron says it's it's like our town in some ways, if you know that. Wonderful. Right.
0: Right. The Thornton Wilder play. What struck me also with the documentary is there's no voiceover. It's no. all actuality. Yes. And there's nobody telling me where to look or quote, what to think as I listen to everybody's story. And that's that's another thing that really drew me in.
1: Yeah, so you're you're watching a story, but the story happens to be real. And so we're hoping the impact of how you feel when you watch this film will change the way maybe you think about the issues that are brought up in the film, like climate change and sort of what, what do we have to do? And just, you know, what what is the value of having safety nets as a community, as a government? The value of these incredible social infrastructures like first responders, firemen, and many, I mean, there were thousands of first responders who were on the ground ultimately in Paradise. I mean, these are systems that we really need (laughs) as communities. Sure. And we need to depend on them in some capacity. So The idea is, if you watch something that is truly immersive, that you almost forget that you're watching what you would consider a documentary. Although I don't think documentaries are dirty words anymore, or is a dirty word anymore, the way that it may have been years ago. I think people, they've really been popularized in a way that I think people are sort of becoming used to. And actually. They're used to screening them, but I think they're also even used to now turning to documentaries to to get some version of the truth.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree. And I love that, a dirty word, that there is so much more to learn and to absorb by watching these real-life stories. So let's move from that and tell me what you are also working on. What fingers are in other pies?
1: We have so many pies. (laughs) You can't eat anymore. Uh, I'm so full. Yes, yes. yes. So we have several series that are in the works that we have collaborating on um, with wonderful partners like Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus and Netflix and Showtime and ranging from all different kind of exciting topics such as the School of American Ballet to, you know, a small community in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and sort of a localized middle school league there to, we announced that we were doing a project with um, Cindy Adams on gossip. And, ah, and- I, and- I the- was just going to say the, story the story infamous gossip Adams The Adams story and, and the coverage that the New York Post has done over the years we have uh, a wonderful project, which we're so excited about, about Julia Child, which we've already announced, which we are doing with the incredible filmmakers, Julie Cohen and Betsy West, who did the RBG documentary, Ah, mm-hmm. which we're partnering with CNN Films and Sony Classics on. We're working on a documentary project on Louis
0: Armstrong. How many people work at Imagine?
1: Not that many. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. We have a very small team of us, Um, and I have to say, like, it's this remote working existence has been incredibly, incredibly challenging. But everyone on our team at Imagine Documentaries, and certainly I've experienced at Imagine, the company as a whole has has really adjusted as best as we could, and I think we're being as productive as we possibly can. And I think what is exciting right now, and listen, a lot of these projects, I just mentioned we have wonderful partners on clearly from the filmmaking side and directors but also other production companies even in some cases it's an exciting time because I think documentary production is finally able to sort of return in some capacity in a much um, I shouldn't say easier way but in a uh, manageable way than sort of the bigger scripted projects right now.
0: As you're talking, I'm thinking to myself that you you give new meaning to the word imagine. (laughs) In what way? Because we're imagining so many possibilities. Exactly. Exactly. And that you can imagine something and it becomes reality. It's not just floating around in your head, oh, I wish, whatever, but you...
1: Yeah, and and
0: I have to say, like, for me
1: personally, at this stage of my career, I mean, what what has been sort of the most interesting thing about this transition from being on a network side like HBO for so many years to being at a wonderful place like Imagine, which, like I said, Braun Howard and Brian Grazer, they have been producing for a long, long time. And I think this idea of being able to be a producer to be able to really generate projects from the ground level up to be able to your point kind of imagine dreams and then think how do we how do we do that? How do we put the project together? How do we chase the subject or the rights or how do we bring it to a director? How do we find the financing or find a network partner for it? It's been really liberating and, and really exhilarating to think of all the possibilities, to your point.
0: Does your work take you from Imagine documentaries to Imagine Entertainment? Are they intertwined for you?
1: They are intertwined in that there is so much wonderful synergy and cross-pollination at Imagine right now. I mean, Imagine has expanded as a whole, as a company, in a really incredible way over the past few years. So along with Imagine documentaries, there's also a kids and family department, there's an international division, there's a branded division, there's clearly a very seasoned scripted TV division, feature film division. So what's exciting about being at a place like Imagine is that we can think of a a topic like Rebuilding Paradise would be, just to use it as an example, it's a real documentary film based on real people but maybe there is a scripted idea within sort of what that town has experienced that would be compelling to the feature film division or any of the subjects we're doing gossip. Maybe there is a scripted TV project mm-hmm. that comes out of that as well, or there's some sort of inspiration. So it's exciting to be able to collaborate with colleagues from different divisions and different specialties. and. And just try to think how can we really maximize the potential of all these wonderful creative
0: ideas. As you look back over your career and your rich and my words, rich and rewarding career, let me ask you, is there something you'd like to do that you haven't done? Oh yeah. <laughs> so really? my, I
1: still have, <laughs> I hope, like lots of years ahead of me. Oh well, I'm not I'm saying it's all over tomorrow. Not at all. Um, I mean, look, is there ideas that I can think of specifically that I wish I've done? I'm sure every day something comes up that I think, like, this would be a great idea or I wish I could have done that. But I have to say, I mean, as as much as I started in the, in the scripted world and have such a, a love and respect for writers, scripted directors, producers, my colleagues that I'd imagine, and I hope to be involved probably more so in the future again on some narrative projects. But I have to say, like I just so love being embedded in the documentary world.
0: Was that National Geographics idea to do this rebuilding paradise, or was it Imagine Docs idea?
1: It started with Ron and it started with Imagine Docs. And we were able to to mobilize and start developing the project. But I have to say Nat Geo came on board incredibly quickly to support the project.
0: Well, Sarah, all I can say to you is, I hope that you look back over your rich and varied career and just appreciate what you've done for all of us. Seriously, I don't mean to deify you, and I'm not looking to embarrass you, but it's, it's <laughs> I'm blushing. You
1: just can't see because we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank you for having such a strong interest and passion for documentaries and for inviting me onto the show. This has been really fun and really rewarding. And thank you so much for taking such a strong interest in rebuilding paradise.
0: Well, it's totally my pleasure. And I could not not do that. And hopefully you'll be in touch with us. And if there are other projects that you're involved with, there's always room for a part two.
1: Oh, please. There's going to be part two, part three, part four. Part oh my
0: goodness. I'm going
1: to have. Part five. You're going to be knocking on your door with our future documentary project. Hey, and hey. And then some of our wonderful documentary filmmakers. Too.
0: Don't knock. Walk right in. <laughs> thank, <laughs> Sandy, you, thank you, Sarah. so much. This has been so fun. I've really enjoyed it Also, thank you again. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.